0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 129, Andrew Ferguson, Digital Habit Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Andrew Ferguson. Andrew is a professor of law at American University's Washington College of Law, where he teaches evidence, criminal law and procedure, and privacy law. Among other things, his research focuses on predictive policing, the Internet of Things, and juries. Our podcast today features Andrew's recent article, Digital Habit Evidence, which is being published by the Duke Law Journal. In it, Andrew examines habit evidence, but with a digital twist. Traditional habit evidence, or the traditional habit inference under Rule 406, has always had somewhat of a speculative feel. You always buckle your seatbelt, you typically do your laundry on Thursdays, you typically go for a morning run. These habits are then used to infer that you did indeed buckle your seatbelt on the day of the accident, that you did do laundry on Thursday, September 4th, and that you did go for a morning run on that day. But habits and routine practices are not necessarily sure things and some things are more predictable than others, causing the application of the habit rule to be a bit perilous or fitful, to say the least. Andrew suggests that all of this is likely to change in the future. The Internet of Things may change everything. Google Maps knows that I am likely to want to drive home at 5.30, Why? Well, because it has tracked my daily habits. And it knows that at 5.30, when I get in my car, I'm likely going home. And these predictions will only grow as our thermostats and refrigerators and security systems catalog our comings and goings. What does all this digital habit evidence mean for proof generally and for Rule 406 specifically? My discussion with Andrew tries to find out. Andrew, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Your article is, of course, about digital habit evidence. So let's start by introducing Rule 406 and the habit rule. One thing that I learned from your article is that Rule 406 is not exactly the same as the habit rule under the common law. So what's Rule 406, and how does it differ from the common law?
1: So Rule 406 is the rule of habit. If you want to just read it, it says, evidence of a person's habit or an organization's routine practice may be admitted to prove that on a particular occasion, the person or organization acted in accordance with the habit or routine practice. The court may admit this evidence regardless of whether it is corroborated or whether there was an eyewitness. Now, the language in 406 was obviously influenced by the common law. And in the common law, habit had developed sort of as a necessity. People have habits. Humans have habits. Courts were aware of these habits, and sometimes they were actually quite helpful to fill in the gaps of proof. Sometimes they were quite helpful to give a non-character basis, a concern that it might run into character, but a morally neutral sort of sense that this thing just kept happening in the past. So it was more likely that it was gonna happen in the future. And the interesting thing about 406 was it was confronted with some tensions in the common law about whether there needed to be corroboration. What was the basis of sort of the justification? Is this about probabilities that this thing's happened all the time? Or is it about a psychological view that this is just automatic and something we don't think about as part of our habits, like biting your nails while you read or other things that you don't think about anymore when you do them? Or whether it was based on something else. And essentially, the rule writers punted on everything and just opened it up. It's an incredibly broad rule. It has no corroboration requirements. It has no real limitations. It chose to adopt both the probability argument and the psychological sort of underlying justification. And it sort of exists in its world of under 406 as a very broad, undefined, in the sense of having limits in the text, rule. And yet isn't necessarily all that powerful or used all that often. It just sort of sat there in 406. And it's something I tried to rediscover in this article, connecting it to... The Internet of Things and digital habits that we are collecting
0: and collating and quantifying. And part of the reason I wrote the article. You talked about the corroboration requirement. I want to focus on that little piece about eyewitness. And I think I previously had misinterpreted that as you don't need evidence that there was an eyewitness to the habit. And what I learned from your article was that in the common law, there seemed to be something of a preferencing rule that if there had been an eyewitness, meaning a direct observation to whatever it is that you're trying to prove, then you wouldn't be allowed to use the habit evidence. And I have something of a fascination for preferencing rules. And it turns out that the rule writers rejected that preferencing. Any thoughts on why they might have chosen to do that?
1: yeah so just to clarify and you're absolutely right so one of the limits of common law habit was it was not the first preference or so if you had direct evidence of something that happened or someone could say you'd rather not talk about that well this person normally did it in the past so it must have happened here we, we tend to not like that in trial facts we want to know what happened here not what someone might have done in the past and when faced with that choice The rule writers said, we're not going to limit it that way. We're going to allow habit, even if it is just corroborating or supporting eyewitness. We're not going to limit it in any way. Essentially, the rule makers were given a series of common law limits or potential limits, and they rejected them all, leaving it a really pretty
0: wide open rule, at least in its text. What about in practice? You have this rule that's drafted as something of a bit of a loose cannon, I think sometimes, though, that it's hard to get a sense of how evidentiary rules are used in reality. So in doing your research, what's your sense of how 406 tends to be applied? Is it, in fact, a loose canon?
1: I wouldn't say it's ignored, but I think it has rested in a dormant state. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes you'll get a situation where a court wants to rely to or a litigant wants to raise it, but it hasn't been really a primary source. Even as you, you know, when you teach evidence, right, you'll teach 406, but you don't spend a whole lot of time on it. It's one of those interesting rules. People don't spend that much focus on it. And I think in litigators, when they graduate and they're using it, it's there, but unless they're really desperate, they're not going to call on it. And so when you read the collected cases and the federal courts and state courts, you see it showing up on occasion. It's hard to find consistency about how it gets applied or where it gets applied. And it doesn't gain primacy, really. It's really there in the background, sometimes a necessary gap filler, but not a central part of anyone's trial strategy.
0: But in your paper, you suggest that the Internet of Things and this brave new world of digital habit evidence may be a game changer for 406. And I think more broadly, how we prove things at all. Why do you think the internet of things is the game changer?
1: I agree. I do think this has a potential to revolutionize trial practice, just like digital evidence is going to revolutionize trial practice. But think about what many of us have done in our lives to try to improve ourselves this is whether you're thinking about having a smart watch that's reminding you to get up and stand or walk a little bit longer whether you have a smart car and essentially all cars now are basically computers on wheels that's recording how fast you go where you go how you drive safe or not insurance companies are doing real time insurance, look at your real time driving patterns to see if you're driving within a speed limit or speeding along on curvy roads or any of those things. And so we are building this world of smart devices, internet of things that are collecting our habits. They're literally collecting our patterns in order to help us, guide us, nudge us to live a better life, be healthier, be more efficient, whatever those things are. And in doing so, we've accidentally been creating potential habit evidence under 406 or the state equivalents in our lives. And so the point of the paper is to say we have this confluence of a world where we are starting to literally collect our habits in quantifiable, identifiable, predictable ways. That's why the algorithm on your watch is suggesting you need to wake up at 6.30 tomorrow because you always wake up at 6.30 and it knows you wake up at 6.30, so maybe you'd want this prompt. At the same time, we have this rule that has been written in a completely over broad way, is applicable in civil and criminal cases. Is interesting to reveal the background information of who a person is or what they did before the incident that's now being litigated, and the article basically takes this insight that we've built this world of smart data, quantified data that, in other words, is our quantified habits, and we have this evidentiary rule that, in my mind, has sort of been lying dormant because it was kind of hard to prove with analog human witnesses and if you put them together you not only are creating a new form of secondary evidence that's going to support the direct digital evidence uh, but very well may change sort of how we think about what's relevant what kind of information we can get about the parties and litigation and if embraced by trial lawyers who do civil cases or criminal cases might really become the focal point of debate and discussion if people see the opening that i see in uh, 406, and the habit rules.
0: Well, one point that I really like in your paper is that you suggest that all of this digital tracking data that we have it can help us validate some of these common law intuitions about how habit evidence is more predictable or more useful than, say, regular propensity or character evidence. Can you tell us a little bit more about that idea?
1: Right. So from the evidence scholarship, evidence theory perspective, one of the, I think, contributions of the paper, it says, look, most of evidence is based on not just like common law theories, but human theories. They're sort of about how human behavior works. They weren't derived from quantitative studies of what humans actually did in part because we didn't have the technology when we were writing the federal rules to do so, and part we didn't have the will, and part the rulemakers thought they knew what the world was like, so that they wrote it in that way. But we now do. And so one of the fascinating things about the quantification of our lives is you can kind of prove or test some of the underlying intuitions of habit. So for example, one of the theories of habit evidence is this kind of probabilistic theory. Like if it happened enough times in the past, it's more likely that it happened the same way in the future. So if every day you leave your house at 630, because you got to be at work at eight o'clock. And the record is that you basically do this five days a week, 50 weeks a year, odds are on the date at issue, you probably can predict that this is your habit is what you do, we have proof. And like, you could have testimony about that, you could have the rules say it, almost anyone can testify. You yourself could testify to that as habit. It, really, there's no limits. But now we might be able to quantify prove be proved just how many times. Or did you really leave at that exact time? Maybe it was more within a half hour or an hour. And we can sort of look at these intuitions that are guiding our evidentiary rules in a new way because we can quantify them. I and I think it just adds a sort of an interesting future point of investigation for evidence theorists to go see if we're right that the intuitions that underlie our evidentiary rules are actually empirically proven or validated. And I think habit offers the opportunity to do that both on a probabilistic idea, but also a psychological theory, which is basically are these things so automatic that you don't even think hitting your left turn signal before you turn left, you don't even think about it when you're driving a car, you just do it. And with smart cars, you could actually find out whether that's true, you literally could find out the timing that it takes you do it three seconds before you turn left because the car knows when you hit this turn signal and when you turn left.
0: So that's a great empirical opportunity. I can imagine that you might want to do that, or perhaps
1: I'm not an empiricist, so I will defer to whoever is listening to this to take that on. And honestly, the car companies actually have the data. It would, you know, if there were a way to open it, like it actually wouldn't be that hard to do. They're collecting a lot of this information already, and they using it to build smart cars and autonomous cars and everything else. But there's probably a small evidence puzzle to to solve within it as well.
0: Could be an amazing piece for someone who's thinking about going on the market. That's empirical, but I think normatively, you might envision a slightly different habit rule as a result of this information. For example, you could perhaps require that litigants prove the error rate of their habit evidence before having it admitted? Or maybe you would demand a minimum error rate in order for the habit evidence to be admitted? Is that something that sounds appealing to you? Or do you think the bright line rule is the better way to go?
1: I think that it forces courts or rulemakers, whoever is sort of making these decisions, even theorists who are writing about it, to really grapple with whether the broadly written rule makes sense if you step back and think about what the habit evidence rule says there really aren't any limits it's an odd rule that they really did open it up in ways that could have been abused i don't think they necessarily were abused I don't think they were actually even used the way they could have been used but it was written in a way that left that open i think that if people adopt this digital habit evidence theory and if it becomes used in litigation i imagine courts will be forced to Perhaps rethink whether the wide open nature makes sense, maybe draw lines, require error rates, or require a bit more precision about what is allowed in and why before it going in. But I think we're at the, it has to be adopted first. And so it's adopted all over the place. And everyone reads my article, which they should. That'd be one thing. But then I do think you're right that it may force a little bit more introspection about whether we're okay with habit evans being such a broad rule. And maybe
0: we'll see change. So here's one difficulty that I have, I guess not with the paper, but with this idea of digital habit evidence. And perhaps you can help me think through it. It seems that in large part, having all of this digital habit data effectively obviates the need for Rule 406 in the first place. So let me explain. Rule 406 is about habit inferences. And Usually, you've talked about how habit was a gap filler at the beginning of the interview. Usually, you only need these kinds of habit inferences when you don't have direct data. You want to figure out whether or not you brushed your teeth, so then you rely on habit. But if I know from your toothbrush that you brushed your teeth on Wednesday at 7.15 in the morning then it seems like we don't need to talk about habit evidence at all. So in effect, rather than supercharging the habit rule, it seems to me that the Internet of Things sows the seeds of the demise of Rule 406. Is that, does that make sense?
1: I think that what we will see is the primacy of direct digital evidence in trials. And I think you're absolutely right. And people have written about it. I'm not sure the evidentiary sort of issues are as interesting, maybe they will become so interesting, because a lot of the old rules can be adopted to those new rules. But let me give you an example, I think, to me, intuitively explains it. there was a case out of Florida involving a Tesla car. Tesla, as you know, is a pretty fancy car system that has sensors everywhere, guides how fast you go, knows like when you're turning, how you're turning. It's a really 360 data collection system in a car. And so there was this Tesla that gets into this horrific, fiery accident where people die. And the families of the people who drove the Tesla, uh, which not just crashed, but also exploded into flame and everything else, sued Tesla. And so Tesla hires folks to look into the crash, and they have the direct digital evidence that shows that this particular Tesla was going like 116 miles before it crashed. and literally they do the whole crime scene analysis and they can show that this driver from direct digital evidence was speeding lost control and the result was pretty horrific but they also because they have the collected Tesla data from this particular car could also show that on average This Tesla was being driven at 95 to 100-something miles per hour every day. And so when they do the argument to the jury or the judge, that they're able to both do the direct digital evidence that could be enough. That's all you actually need to show that the driver was speeding and negligent and probably wasn't the Tesla's fault for exploding. But it's hard to ignore the weight and importance of the fact that this driver was also driving recklessly and negligently every single other day of their ownership of this car. And so that to me is a good example of digital habits. Is the fact that this driver always sped every day at like pretty reckless speeds relevant to the car crash issue? Not traditionally, not really. But is it certainly compelling evidence that would make a jury fine for Tesla and not the driver or the family? Probably, right? It's one of those things that you're going to see more and more, not because it's necessary, but because it supports the direct digital evidence. And in doing so, you could say, well, that's cumulative, it's irrelevant. But I think under the rules of habit, you're allowed to bring in the corroborating evidence if you can fit it under habit. And I think they might be able to make that that claim in other situations. So I don't disagree that the primary battle in the future will be about the admissibility and sort of relevance of direct digital data. We're going to have it all over the place. Like Everything is evidence. I'm actually working on a book that's titled now, Everything is Evidence, or The Problems of When Everything is Evidence, which isn't about an evidence book. It's really about crim pro. But the idea is we're living in that age. And so the primary battles will be about this direct digital evidence. But the secondary battles are going to be about things like habit, because litigants like Tesla and other places that have deep pockets and want to win are going to bring in all of the external facts that support their theory of the case to bolster their case, because you have a stronger case, if you can get both of those facts in that if you just had the direct digital evidence.
0: So it certainly suggests to me that that's one reason to bring back the common law preferencing rule, suggesting that if you have the digital evidence, you shouldn't be allowed to use the habit. But that perhaps is for another time. Final question for you. What's next for you? particularly on this habit issue? Where does your research go from here?
1: It's a good question. I try to find puzzles in the law where you have old rules, laws, principles, and new technology and play with the intersection. So like Jeff Bellin and I wrote an article about a judicial notice in the age of Google, when judges can literally Google everything. That was a fun puzzle. This was another puzzle that I had, the digital habit where I've been thinking about These worlds. I'm working on some Crim Pro articles now that are connecting new surveillance technologies and old fashioned Fourth Amendment law. So I don't know what the next evidence piece will be, but I do think that I'm going to spend a little bit of time trying to get litigants thinking about digital habit evidence and maybe do some of the more promotional work on this piece, which I don't usually do with my scholarship. Because I really do think that the world is open for creative lawyers to take this principle and run with it. And I'm just sort of curious to see how it turns out and how courts address this new world of smart data that reveals way too
0: much. Well, Andrew, thanks for a great discussion about the habit rule and how it interacts with this new world of digital habit type evidence. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much. It's an honor. Andrew's article raises a number of interesting issues. First is this idea of preferencing rules, which is something of a pet interest of mine. Modern evidence law doesn't do a lot of preferencing. Obviously hearsay is a preferencing rule, because things like the unavailability exceptions under Rule 804 prefer live testimony, but allow hearsay when it is necessary and reliable. And the best evidence rule, or the original document rule under 1002, is also a preference rule. But typically, the federal rules disfavor preferencing, probably on the theory that juries can sort out what is better evidence and what is worse. Preferencing, though, can have its advantages. Take the problem of digital habit evidence that I explored with Andrew in his interview. Habit evidence is arguably most useful when we have no other choices. Suppose the question is whether the plaintiff's seatbelt was defective and unbuckled during the accident, product liability, or whether the plaintiff didn't buckle the seatbelt in the first place. You're unlikely to be able to get direct evidence on whether the plaintiff buckled the seatbelt or not on that day. So habit is going to be super important. But with all of this digital tracking evidence that is out there, you're likely eventually to have an electronic record about whether the plaintiff buckled his or her seatbelt, which then obviates the need for habit evidence. Preferencing allows us to use habit when we need it and to exclude it when we don't. Second is this broader idea that the Internet of Things will change the nature of proof. If everything or most things are recorded, then we don't really need to rely on traditional methods of proof like witness testimony. And we certainly don't want to preference witness testimony because social scientists have shown that it can be highly fallible. So. We'll want to be more reflective about what the rules of evidence should look like going forward in a world awash in digital evidence. And finally, I love this idea of Andrew's that the Internet of Things offers an opportunity to empirically test our intuitions about the predictive nature of habits. Habits in some areas may be more predictive than in others. Some broadly believed habits may not be predictive at all. And we can certainly imagine a world in which the use of Rule 406 might require this kind of Daubert-like showing of error rate rather than the one-size-fits-all approach that we have today. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. Thanks also to Harvard Law School, which is hosting me for the fall semester. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.